It's time to talk UK sports with the voice of the Wildcats, Tom Leach. This is the Leach Report Radio Network. Join in the discussion by tweeting your questions to at Leach Report or email leachreport at gmail.com. And you can call 877-904-1080. Now, along with an outstanding lineup of guests and broadcast to the most passionate fan base in America, the Big Blue Nation, here's the voice of the Wildcats. Tom Leach. Hello, everybody. Welcome in to another week of Leach Report shows as we get uh, the week rolling with our weekly chats with Kyle Tucker from TheAthletic.com. And we'll lead off today with my UK football broadcast partner, Jeff Pecoro. Hopefully we'll be working games come Labor Day weekend somewhere in the the booth at Kroger Field or somewhere else. Um, So... Those uh, discussions uh, are there. None of that's settled at the moment. So we'll just uh, talk about a little bit about the baseball season that might or might not happen. Uh, same for football when Jeff joins us here in a bit. Wildcat news of the day is a service of Cardinal Point Financial Group. That is a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services. Dick Vitale tweeted over the weekend that. Coach Cal had told him UK has submitted the paperwork to the NCAA for Olivier Saar's eligibility waiver. Usually takes a while uh, to get this um, kind of thing processed in terms of just even submitting the application. Now, Johnny Juzang's happened very quickly, but I think that was uh, in this climate probably an easy call for the NCAA because uh, once he. Uh, was going back to um, very close to his home area, made it, I think, hard to deny in the, with the COVID-19 circumstances. So that was a pretty straightforward one. Here you've got uh, a transfer in a case that they don't typically allow it for a coaching change, but you have, I think, some extenuating circumstances. But you have to, if you're UK, I'm assuming – you get Danny Manning, you get uh, Steve Forbes, maybe others at Wake Forest, somebody in compliance. Um, you've got uh, your own uh, people. Maybe you, you talk to uh, Olivier, um, whoever else. So it, it does take a while to uh, to put it all together and to make your case. So um, if that is is in the hands of the NCAA now, so we'll uh, feel, feel good about getting a decision before school starts, but that's still a ways away. Florida's governor has signed a bill that allows college athletes to get paid endorsements. This is effective July of next year, which to me just, again, underscores what I don't understand the uh, the ADs at Duke and North Carolina. Um, you know, if you can, if you don't like it, fine, express, express the uh, skepticism about how it'll work, etc. But you better figure out a way to make it work because it's going to happen. Um, areas that you have no control over are going to enable this to happen, as uh, looks like we're seeing in Florida. So the U.K. released the numbers for the basketball men's basketball team for the upcoming season. And is normally the case these days, almost all of them are single di- – or a lot of them are single-digit numbers. B.J. Boston's a three, Terrence Clark five, um, Devin Askew two, um, Jacob Toppin, zero. A couple of the other uh, freshmen, Cameron Fletcher's 21, Isaiah Jackson, 23. A lot of good history with those numbers. Anthony Davis, uh, Jack Givens. 
Olivier Saar, 30. I believe that's the number he had at Wake. Lance Ware, 55. I was just glad to see that one uh, because it seems like nobody picks the the uh, larger numbers anymore. A great tradition of you know Dan Issel's 44, uh, Jim Andrews, uh, 55. Um, so uh, Lance Ware is going to wear number 55 this season. Uh, a couple of others, Davion Mintz, number 10. Isaac DiGregorio will wear number 15. ESPN's Marty Smith uh, has a, a nice profile on former Wildcat Jeremy Jarman, who's part of our UK broadcast crew for football season. Uh, Jeremy, of course, works in the healthcare field now, so that's the focus of the piece. So you ought to go uh, check that out when you have time. Um, Jeremy's uh, you know in a, uh, a situation where it's you know you're, he's on the front lines, so that's and he's got a, a new new son. Uh, what I think he told us about four months old. Uh, last time he was on with us, so um, certainly keep Jeremy and, and his family in your uh, in your prayers because he's in the healthcare field and working uh, day in and day out uh, right up close to this COVID nineteen cases. Um, but it's a great story; you can check it out at the ESPN's website. UK's Carson Coleman, relief pitcher, has signed a free agent deal with the Yankees. He originally pitched for Lexington Catholic. And I went on to UK and unfortunately didn't get to have much of a season this past year because of the circumstances. And our uh, Claiborne Farm uh, road to the Triple Crown updates began this week with the first leg of the Triple Crown coming up Saturday, the Belmont Stakes. That still seems weird to say. But the uh, Belmont Stakes is coming up Saturday in New York. And uh, trainer Steve Asmussen has added pneumatic to the field for the Belmont. Uh, he ran, I think, last time off the board behind Maxfield at Churchill Downs last month. Basin, who had been targeted for the Belmont, they're going to uh, move him to the Toyota Bluegrass Stakes at Keeneland instead. And our Keeneland Select Race of the Week, we gave you a good one, 14-1. to 1. She's a Julie, a winner of the Grade 1 Ogden Phipps on Saturday. Links to the stories that we talk about each day can be found on the Bud Light Leach Report page at TomLeachKY.com. Heading to a break, Jeff Pecora will join us when we come right back. It's the Leach Report Radio Network. This is where the Big Blue Nation gathers. It's Talk Radio 1080 and the Leach Report, followed by Kentucky Sports Radio. Welcome back into our Monday show. We go to the KentuckyHempWorks.com hotline to bring on Jeff Pocoro from the UK Football Network and the Reds Network. So you're going to be getting to work any Reds games? They're going to play baseball? Can we talk football? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that- yeah, it it, it kind of looks Tom like the the bottom line here after the so called negotiations for the last couple months is that it's going to be the order of the commissioner, and that's going to be a fifty game season uh, basically that that is in their CBA, so he can order them to play, and that's what's going to happen, and uh, so it's going to be a very short season of fifty games, and now the only thing is uh, when is it going to start? I guess is the what everybody's waiting on that final shoe to drop, so to speak. I remember, I think it was the 84 Tigers, who I remember just because Sparky was, was managing them, so I was rooting for them. I want to say they started like 35-5. and five. So <laughs> a 50-game season could be a little crazy. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think the 90 Reds started unbelievably you're right. like that out of the gate and then only played like 500 ball for the last 
three months of the year. But, you know, the problem with that is, uh, you know, you look at Joey Votto the last couple of years. He started really slow out of the gate the first month. If that happens, this team's in trouble. You have you can't start out, you know, two and eight or something because then you have to play, you know, seven fifty ball for the you know the final forty games. So, you know, it's going to be you've got to hit the ground running. It, it's going to be very interesting short season to say the least. I mean. Yeah, they don't even play 50 games. They play more than 50 games in rookie ball, so it's, it's going to be interesting. What are they going to do in terms of the lead-up if they go that route? Uh, it'll be about a three-week uh, spring training, which will be at the team's home site. So th- the only teams that are different is Toronto right now because you can't come in and out. You know, you have to be quarantined all that out of Canada. So it looks like they're going to be at their spring training home, which is in Dunedin, Florida. Um, and then... The other places, uh, the other two places that they're worried about a little bit is New York and California because, you know, they've been hit and ravaged a little bit more than a lot of the other states. But as of now, everybody will spring training for about three weeks at their home. Uh, so it looks like the season will get underway probably the second or third week of July. And again, it just depends on when he puts down that executive order. But the one thing the players don't want to play, uh, you know, deep into the winter because there are some decent teams that are, you know, you're going to play in mid-October, the you know, Halloween in Colorado or Minnesota. I mean, those are two pretty good teams. Or Cleveland, it'll be a foot of snow there, you know, yeah. in Colorado and Minnesota. So, so that's your problem right now. But, yeah, it looks like it's probably going to be about three weeks. But, again, uh, we're just waiting for that announcement, which hopefully will come sometime this week. So you think it will be this week? They'll they'll will have something. Uh, so. I, I would think so because they want to get they want to get started. You know, as soon as possible. There's not going to be any fans, and it's going to be real interesting. What we've heard so far, Tom, is that they'll the announcers on TV and radio will not be at the ballpark either, home or away. So we would be in a studio. Well, we uh, it would be like Tom Brenneman and Chris would be in a, in our studio downtown Cincinnati even if the Reds were playing in, say, Detroit or, or Cleveland or Chicago or wherever, they'll be calling the game off of a television, as will the radio broadcasters. So it's going to be real interesting. And then there will be no sideline reporters. They will have a, uh, from what we're hearing, kind of like a Zoom type of thing um, that they'll set up or they'll put a headset down there and you ask the guy questions. And So it's, it's really going to be interesting. Those are some of the things that they're they're talking about doing. So we're not really sure yet what's going to happen on the uh you know broadcast side of things yeah same same for football i'm sure uh we'll get we'll get to it in a minute i was watching the golf yesterday and saturday yeah. and uh they were doing those they had like a, a mic uh almost like somebody would would be coming up to to speak at a news conference there's a mic <laughs> there and uh jim nance would ask them questions yeah you, you know it's it, this really started um I don't know, about eight or so years ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that with the Olympics. And, you know, our good friend Kenny Rice, who does some of the boxing and stuff at the Olympics, he's actually in a studio in New York. They're not in wherever the Olympic site is, and they have about 50 studios like that um, for the Olympics where they they have one person that's actually at the Games uh, that's, you know, kind of sets the scene type of guy. And uh, does the interview, but everybody else is are in booths in in New York or Connecticut doing <laughs> doing the broadcast. So, you know, it, it's not precedent setting. It's already been done before. So, you know, it, it's just it's interesting. I, I think that the thing everyone is hoping is that they get 
some type of a vaccination for this, and if they do, uh, you know, that'll ease a lot of the concerns. But right now, I think everything's still kind of up in the air, and everyone's kind of playing it day by day because this is such a fluid, you know, situation. It kind of changes day-to-day, week-to-week. You know, as more things open, and, uh, you know, the second wave has kind of came in in some of these cities. So it's going to be real interesting to see what happens in the next couple weeks. Chat with Jeff Pecoro. We'll take a quick break and come back and continue to get into a little uh, college football discussion. When we come right back, it's the Leach Report Radio Network. This is the Leach Report on Talk Radio 1080. You can interact with the show via Twitter at Leach Report. Now, here's Tom. We're back with Jeff Pecoro. From the Reds Network and our UK football broadcasts, and we were talking baseball, but uh, with college football, we don't know yet, uh, you know, how things will will work out. Assuming if there are games, then you know, will we be in our booth out at Kroger Field, or will we be in a remote location? I saw Kevin Harlan in a story where he said that uh, the NBA games are going to be calling those from a, a studio in Atlanta to uh, begin with. They might be on site by the the time the finals roll around. Um, I know for years we have all joked on our crew when we go down to Vanderbilt, there's that hotel right next to the field that overlooks the stadium, and we've joked about hooking up a crowd mic and then just go to the hotel and call the game from the room and order room service. But uh, we may be into some unusual circumstances this year. Yeah, you know, Tom, the thing that's interesting to me, though, is I understand with basketball because you're you're right on the court, you know, uh, and, and the players, sometimes the ball, you, you know, you get – the ball comes over to you and the players come over to you and things like that. But in, especially in football and baseball, you're what? 200, 300 feet at least from the field or, or more than right. that. The, you know, in some of those uh, football stadiums, the press boxes and second and third at Tennessee, goodness gracious. You know, you, <laughs> it's in another state. Fly underneath <laughs> us there. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just interesting the way that uh, some of these uh, things happen um, or, or how it's going to work out too. And, you know, you talk about the football players. I saw that Houston, you know, had players on campus, much like Kentucky has. And they had to shut down because, what was it, six or seven guys, uh, you know, had coronavirus. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think the Houston situation, I read that where most schools, and I think Kentucky's in this group, were testing everybody when they came back, and Houston uh, was not. They were just only oh. testing guys that had symptoms, and so there were some guys oh. that were asymptomatic that uh, showed up, and so um, that's, you know, I guess they were trying to maybe save save a little bit on the cost of testing. I don't know, but uh, that was one of the extenuating circumstances there. Uh, it's, you know, I think for Kentucky football fans, Jeff, everybody – is so uh, excited. I know some of the yeah. you look at some of the preseason publications, and that excitement's not reflected. But I think within the Kentucky football <laughs> fan base, there's a, a really tremendous level of optimism that uh, they don't want to see this season snuffed out from. No, I, and there should be. I mean, this is a, what Mark has done is remarkable in the short time that he's been here. And yeah, you, know, you get two of the best offensive linemen in all of football. Uh, you got actually three if you you got to include Drake and in that their offensive line has been ranked second in the SEC only behind Alabama. Uh, you know nationally they're in the top five. In that uh, you know they've got a stable of running backs. They're they're deep on the defensive side. Obviously Chris Oates is a is a is a hit, but they're you know they're they're stacked over there. Um, it, it's going to be a fun season. They you know uh, yes you lose Lynn Bowden, but you've got healthy quarterbacks coming back and Terry and. You still don't know about Gatewood, what's going to happen there, but 
Uh, there's so much to look forward to to the season, and I know everyone wants to play in, in sports, but obviously we have to be uh, careful with the way we do this. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's just so much optimism around the program right now. You know, this, uh, I think the, the reason, one of the big reasons Kentucky's being able to, to do what it has been able to do and, and put itself in a position to have this level of optimism is, and it's, you know, it's not always the most glamorous area, but it's those guys in the offensive and defensive line that this staff has been able to recruit really probably better than anybody since uh, those uh, Kentucky teams of the, the 70s. Yeah, I think it was real telling, and I, I may have been you that said this to me, but when Mitch interviewed Mark, one of the things he said is, you know, to win in the Southeastern Conference, it, you can't have the gimmicky, um, you, you know, the, they'll, they'll catch on to that kind of stuff, the how mummy type of offense and stuff like that. You have to be able to run the football and you have to be able to stop the run. And that's what he told Mitch. And Mitch liked what he heard there. And obviously that's what he's done. And and you have to build from the inside out in college football. You just have to. Um, and, and they've done that and it's Remarkable, and then you know you got the kid right there down the street if, if, that's uh, looking at Kentucky, and if he decides to come there, oh, what a huge get that would be too. I mean, that's you're, you're building some huge blocks there to to you know expand this whatever you want to call this this the blocks of granite or whatever. Yeah, well, that, that's that offensive line. And it's that's how you... amazing what Tom's done. That's how you um, sustain something, I think, because, yeah. you know, otherwise you're just relying on, you know, uh, a, a Tim Couch coming along or, uh, exactly. you know, exactly. uh, a great uh, player, uh, a Benny Snell, uh, you know, a Mo Williams, etc. Yeah, it, it, because if you've got that, it, a great line will make a mediocre look back, uh, back look a lot better, you know. Um, it gives you better, more time to throw the football. I, I just think it's the building block of college football, and it's been that way forever you've got to be able to run i mean even how mummy's teams ran the football really well you've got to be able to run and you've got to be able to stop to run to me defensively has been unbelievable changes too we don't see teams scoring 40 and 50 points against kentucky anymore and that's that is so uh, sobering and exciting to me to be able to see that happen week in and week out and i am so much looking forward to this season they're deep in, in a lot of key positions yeah. i just think that um, this could be a great year to continue that momentum Jeff, thank you much. Yes, sir. That's Jeff Pecoro, and we'll be back with Kyle Tucker on the Leach Report. Find out more about the voice of the Cats and get great coverage of the Big Blue at TomLeachKY.com. Second half of our Monday show here on the Leach Report as we welcome in Kyle Tucker from TheAthletic.com. Kyle, we're seeing a few stories pop up around the country about um, players testing positive as they've come back to their college programs. I think it's primarily uh, football at this point. Um, Houston had to shut down their workouts, but uh, I did read where they weren't testing everybody as they came in, so maybe that was a contributing factor there. Uh, what do you make of what you're hearing and seeing around the country? Yeah, I think the one thing that concerns me is the idea that everybody – isn't testing everybody uh, when they get there. That seems like the simplest uh, thing of all to me to, to make sure that you don't start out with a, a place of you know potential outbreak. Uh, you know, if you've got multiple people that that might have it when they walk in the door, letting them all be around each other without knowing that until somebody becomes symptomatic, uh, 
is a little alarming. It, it's a little shocking to me that, that college sports don't seem to have a uniform plan uh, that includes universal testing when they walk in the door um, and have some guidelines on testing because uh, the idea that you just let all these people, um, you know, over 100 people on a football team get together without knowing as a baseline that somebody has it or doesn't have it, uh, that's a little worrisome. I think in those places you're going to have problems. I think in the places where they take it, um, you know, take extra precautions, then I think you weed those out and you find out that you have cases and you isolate uh, and you don't risk a mass infection. I mean, the, the, the danger of this whole thing falling apart before we ever get to games is that you have several programs where you have this mass outbreak. Uh, and I don't know that anybody can could reasonably stomach moving forward that way. So I think it's imperative that these programs kind of get it together, um, bite the bullet, whatever it might cost to test everybody on the front end, do it. Uh, it's going to be a lot more costly if your whole team goes down. One of the, as, in terms of the cost aspect of it, uh, one of the stories I read over the weekend, uh, it, it said for basketball teams, I'm not sure why it would, would wait, but the story was saying uh, by basketball season they would be, uh, NCAA teams would be doing pool testing, which is something I know you're familiar yeah. with. We had a local doctor on talking about it. There's a, a Lexington-based company that has uh, uh, been involved, has been on the front uh, lines of, of uh, some of that discussion, and they, they're doing the testing for Keeneland and Churchill Downs, I, I know, and as far as I know, they've not had any issues yet. Um, so that's something that would greatly reduce cost, and I would think seems feasible when you're dealing with, you know, even you know, 100 or so football players, it's uh, it's much different than, a, you know, a crowd of 50,000. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, if you do the pool testing, even with the, with a group of, you know, 150 people, uh, that's only a handful of tests. Mm-hmm. Just, to, just to, right at the start to say, okay, we don't, you know, this group of 30 and this group of 30 and this group of 30 don't have any positive tests. This group of 30, somebody's positive at least, and then you run individual tests. You know, now you've tested 150 people with 35 tests instead of 150 tests. So, um, yeah, I would. I would just hope that people would do the basic on the front end. Make sure everybody's good to go before they walk in the door. Uh, you're obviously going to have some things pop up. I don't think it's super alarming that that people are testing positive. I mean, that's you know that's going to happen. I think everybody's prepared for that and and, and you know what to do then. But you've got to mitigate uh, you know widespread issue because at that point that then you do have to do what Houston did. You got to shut it down until everybody's back. Uh, you know, back healthy. So I think I think you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you don't do everything you can do to to weed out individual cases. Like you, uh, I would assume that uh, schools were expecting some level of, of positive tests as players uh, came back. I would. Uh, the other assumption I have is that they would think that once they get them there and get them into the safety protocols or whatever, that they can uh, effectively manage it and mitigate any, you know, one or two that, that flare up. It's, uh, you know, once they've been there a few weeks and sometime in, you know, in you know, mid to late July, if there's a, uh, or August, there's a, a, a few outbreaks, then it becomes very problematic, I would think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, John Hale just tweeted from the Courier Journal, uh, according to UK's return, campus uh, plan for the football team, return to campus plan, uh, newcomers can start their screening process today. The second wave of returning players who were cleared in the screening process last week 
can start workouts today. And so it sounds like it sounds like Kentucky has a good plan of getting guys here, putting them in a screening process before they're ever allowed to to be involved in activity. And then when everybody's good to go, um, then you introduce them to the group. Um, you know, I, I just think you you have to you just have to be smart right now. I, I am sort of on edge about. You know, I don't, I'm not sure every school is doing the right thing because there's not a uniform plan. And so I just, I have this uneasy feeling that some of these people who aren't taking it seriously enough are going to ruin it for everybody else. Talk with Kyle Tucker from TheAthletic.com. We'll take a quick break and uh, come back and get into a um, story that he uh, did last week on Coach Cal. It's the Leach Report Radio Network. We'll be right back. Can't get to a radio? You can listen to us live on the web at talkradio1080.com. Now, back to the show. Kyle Tucker's on the KentuckyHempWorks.com hotline with us from TheAthletic.com, where you can go and read his latest story about Coach John Calipari in the role of villain throughout his coaching life. What was your motivation for uh, going uh, down the road on this story? Well, we uh, we had... You know, we had to be creative a little bit at the athletic and everyone else <laughs> to write sports stories in a time when there are still no sports, as we're, even though we're hopefully inching towards that. Uh, and so, one of the ideas we've got a bunch of sort of themed uh, projects where a bunch of different writers have written on a topic. Uh, you know, we did best NCAA tournament game I ever covered, uh, best tournament game by date every each of the dates through the tournament, uh, and some things like that. Um, what ifs, great what ifs, and that led to the Sean Kemp story. Um, this one was uh, just a villain, just a general, uh, you know, theme idea of villains in sports. Um, and, and so, to me, which the rest of that uh, project is coming out somewhere further down the line. I think they wanted to go ahead and run this one because they they liked it um, uh, and wanted to get it out there. And it also sort of played off the story I wrote the day before about Cal Perry taking a stand and. Uh, all the things that we're seeing right now, racial injustice and, and some of the, um, uh, you know, just strife in America about that and some of the things Cal has done to be a leader in that area, they sort of played off each other. You see that and then the idea of Cal as a villain. Um, and, and where it started out for me was I thought, I've always thought of Cal as a willing villain, like one of the most willing villains. You, you don't like me, fine. I'm going to lean into that and sort of play the bad guy, and that's, that's fine by me. But as I talk to people, sometimes you have a story at the end that changes. As I talk to people for that story, Larry Brown, his earliest mentor, John Chaney even, who uh, famously came screaming into a press conference he wanted to kill Cal. Uh, you know, if anybody was ever going to think Cal was a villain, certainly John Chaney did at one point. Um, you know, Rick Barnes, who's known Cal since the 70s. Uh, Dan Wetzel, who's covered him since he was a student at UMass, so for 30-odd years, um, all of them sort of changed my mind on that, that no, Cal, Cal didn't want to be a villain. He, he wants to be respected like his peers. He wants to be in the club, but he's always sort of been an outsider because he started young and he started having success really young as an assistant recruiting. Uh, he had, you know, he went to UMass as a young man and uh, took him a little while to get it going, but had success at a very early age. Uh, and he was an agitator. He was willing, you know, knowing at places that he had, you know, like UMass and Memphis where they didn't have this great tradition necessarily, that he was going to have to sort of build the excitement about the program. So he was going to have to pick some fights. You know, at UMass he picked fights with the 
as everyone called it, sort of the New England basketball establishment. Jim Calhoun at UConn and Jim O'Brien at Boston College. Cal's you know, barking at him saying, play me, play me. Why aren't you going to play me? Are you scared to play me? Uh, you know, and, and taking shots at them. Uh, and so in that way, he did have, he's, he's obviously had a role in the shaping of his own, you know, image as a, as a villain, but I don't think he ever set out to be a villain. And, uh, and so that's how the story kind of evolved. The idea that, that he maybe didn't want to be one and he's really not much of one now. And I think that, that whole image of him has changed. I think the idea of him as a renegade or whatever, as a, you know, a rule bender because he's had, you know, two, uh, Final Fours vacated. By the way, none of, neither of which was, tied to him directly. Um, I think that all changes as you see other things happen. I mean, look at where college basketball is right now with all the investigations and the FBI, what they've turned up on some big-name programs, some big-name coaches, um, you know, and some really unseemly things, none of which Calipari or Kentucky have been tied up in. It gets a lot harder to look at him and go, oh, yeah, this, this guy is the villain of college basketball right now. I think, I think that has changed. I got I lost patience with all of the uh, any of the vacated Final Four stuff, and this was long before Calipari ever came here. When uh, Dukes uh, didn't get affected in two thousand one for Corey Maggette, um and you know his relationship with an agent, which was the same kind of stuff that had whether it was Marcus Camby or, or a lot of other players. Uh, Western Kentucky, back to Jim McDaniels even. And it's like, okay, it's Duke, and so you chose – they were speeding, you just chose not to write them up. Uh, right. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah okay, it's don't – It's undeniable that he was taking things from an – Of course. Yeah. And then they've had, they've had a few, actually, uh, at Duke of, of situations like that. And look at it now. I mean, we're in the middle of this lawsuit with Zion Williamson uh, where some, some pretty eyebrow-raising things are coming up where – harder and harder for everybody involved to deny that he was taking some money from somebody while he was at Duke. Um, Couple of s- and so, go ahead. Go ahead. Say, no, I was just saying, uh, you know, if you look at Duke, you look at Carolina with, with the academic scandal. I mean, yes. it has gotten Arizona. Uh, Kansas is facing five level one violations. And you've, got a, you've got a coach in the conference at LSU still employed who's on federal wiretaps talking about offers. Uh, making all strong, bleeping offers to, uh, to five-star recruits. I mean, it, the idea that you would look at Cal and go, like, this, this is the this is the undisputed villain of college basketball uh, with everything else going on is kind of kind of silly. And, and it's interesting too, like to hear somebody like John Chaney, you know, talk about how their relationship evolved. They're good friends now. Uh, and oh why, yeah, I was. You know, his, I've, his I was going to say I was going to go on. there uh, because. Um, a couple of I was maybe the last season or the season before uh, we were doing Cal's radio show at the studio instead of uh, on location, and uh, he I could see him out in the hallway talking to somebody, and I'm kind of tap dancing as we call it the business, waiting for him to come in for the uh, uh, segment, and uh, he's finishing up a phone call, and it was with John Cheney. He'd called to wish him a happy birthday, and they have a genuine friendship, which I'm sure nobody that night in that blow-up between the two of them would have believed whatever happened. Yeah, and I had actually written a separate story last year on the 25th anniversary of the of the famous press conference about their friendship, and Cheney told me then, you know, at one point he had, I can't remember, a hip or knee or some kind of surgery um, and was in the hospital, and he said, you know, he didn't even know, one, how Cal found out, or two, how Cal found out what hospital he was in, but it's, you know, hospital phone rings, and it's John Calipari 
uh, call in to check on him. And, you know, Cal is, you know, at one point when he was at Memphis, he had a player miss huge free throws, and he, he put him on the phone with John Chaney to talk him through, you know, you know you're going to be okay. Um, and, and Chaney's theory was just essentially that, what a, what a lot of the people I talked to about story was, he, you know, he was young, he was brash, he wasn't afraid to sort of, you know, pick a fight with the big, you know, with, with the big bad, you know, guy on the block, even though he was the new kid on the block. Uh, and when you have success early, people, people want to tell folks like that because he, I think Chase said, stay in your lane. Everybody loves to tell somebody to stay in their lane. And he said, the one thing Cal's never going to do is stay in his lane. Um, maybe that makes people mad, but it doesn't necessarily make him a villain. I heard Mike DeCourcy in an interview several years ago, I think with uh, with Dick Gabriel. I was listening uh, one night, and DeCourcy said something that uh, I think is true, not just for, for Cal, but for a lot of coaches in both directions of this. Uh, Mike said that people, he said, people in my business, being the media, decide somebody's either a black hat or a white hat, and you never get to change hats. And I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think I think that's what happened. You know, he he got he took the black hat black hat early. It's so interesting because he's so aware of it. I think that's why I always assumed he was kind of a willing villain. I'll never forget the night he wins his national championship in 2012. There's a few of us talking to him outside the locker room, and he, and, he, and that's like one of the main things he was focused on. He said, you know, they tried to put the black hat on me. They you know they said I couldn't get this done with, with freshmen or that it was, you know, unseemly that I'm trying to do it with freshmen. Uh, and a lot, he said there's a lot of angry people right now. Um, you know, even in his finest moment, he was thinking about sort of the haters <laughs> who wanted him to wear that black hat. But it's just so funny, like uh, Dan Wetzel puts it in the story, that, you know, Cal was always fighting Superman, but he didn't realize it. He thought he was Superman, uh, you know, and so uh, he didn't realize how he was going to be portrayed in the movie. Um but I, I, he he pointed me to something that I didn't even know had happened at Memphis, which was that um, you know number one Memphis versus number two Tennessee that week. He Cal came out and said that Memphis should secede from the state of Tennessee and become its own state <laughs> because they didn't get any respect. They didn't get the same kind of state money, and and, and you know a lot of the state didn't treat Memphis the same way. Um, and I looked up an old columnist in Memphis at the time who wrote that, like, this is why Cal's a perfect coach for Memphis, because he sort of takes on the city's uh, injustices as his own, and he fights your fight with you. And I think that's how people here feel. Uh, I think it's the, one of the things, when Cal's on your side, he's fighting for you, and he's, he's the good guy. Uh, when he's on somebody else, when he's leading somebody else's team, you, you think he's sort of the bad guy because he's fighting the establishment. But uh, I thought that was all kind of an interesting way of looking at it. It's interesting too. I mean, you, with a the phrase there, you know, the perfect coach for Memphis. Um, and I've always thought he, you know, if you were putting in the qualities into a computer for what you'd want in a coach at Kentucky, you'd, uh, it would spit out, uh, John Calipari, whether it's, you know, um, obviously the, the, the skill, the coaching acumen, but just the, you know, the brashness and, and everything else that, uh, and, and the appreciation for the history and the fan base and all of that. So, and UMass Pope people would probably say the same way. He was the, the perfect guy for their program. Well, and if you look at those two places, you know, the theme is when, when he leaves town, it's never quite the same again. And I think it's one thing that people have to, some folks who, who kind of, uh, jump on Cal here, might do well to remember that you know maybe he should have won another title or two but uh when he leaves town it's probably never going to be the same again it's we'll certainly never see the kind of churn of players come through that we have you know elite 
NBA level guys come through. Um, and, and the idea that you're in the mix to maybe win it all just about every year, something few, few coaches have done. Uh, anything you're especially working on for this coming week for the athletic? Uh, I got a couple things. I'm not ready to, to uh, put them out there yet, but I got a couple okay. things coming down the line. So watch for those at theathletic.com, and uh, if you're not a subscriber, we always encourage you to, to do so, especially these times when you've got a little more time on your hands, uh, some great uh, reads. Uh, Kyle, appreciate the time as always. We'll talk to you next week. All right, thank you. It's Kyle Tucker from theathletic.com. Joining us on the KentuckyHempWorks.com hotline. We'll be right back for our final segment of the Leach Report. This day in uh, Wildcat history, it's a couple of birthdays. Uh, Guy Strong, former Wildcat and a legendary high school basketball coach and college coach, uh, celebrating a birthday today. Uh, had a successful run at EKU and then um, had uh, some great teams over at Clark County when I was doing some of the, their games in the uh, mid-'80s. And then uh, our buddy Dwayne Peavy from UK Athletics uh, celebrating a birthday today as well. Andy Katz from NCAA.com ranked the top 10 college basketball defenders of the past decade. Anthony Davis, number one on the list. No surprise there. Willie Cauley-Stein came in at number seven. So two Wildcats on that list. Uh, condolences go out to uh, the family of Bill Ransdell II. He's the father of... Um, uh, the mid-'80s quarterback at Kentucky, uh, Bill Ransdell, uh, Mr. Uh, Ransdell, the elder Ransdell, uh, passed away uh, recently. U.K. football tweeted out that uh, Bill II had an 88-yard run against Xavier that uh, ties for the second longest in U.K. history. So, uh, again, condolences to the Ransdell family there. Our friends at Claiborne Farm are presenting our coverage of the first leg of the Triple Crown coming up Saturday. The Belmont Stakes will be giving you some updates throughout the week. And Dick Girardi is coming on on Friday to talk about it. And Kenny Rice as well from NBC, who actually be on site working at Mark Story, has an article in the Herald Leader about that. We'll talk with Kenny from up at Belmont Park on the Friday edition to the show. All of our uh, coverage of the Triple Crown this season. Once again, presented by Claiborne Farm, doing the usual unusually well for more than a century. See you tomorrow on the Leach Report. Thanks for listening to the Leach Report. Make sure you check out the podcast page at TomLeachKY.com whenever you miss a show. And be sure to follow the Leach Report Facebook page. If you have a question for Tom,